Hi, this is That Night, and you are listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Fulham Focus Podcast. My name's Matt Boisclair. The international break is over. Mitro is back on fire for Serbia. And the big question now is, will he be able to do it for Fulham too as the season running begins with a trip to the Whites of Villa Park on Easter Sunday? Baldo and Stato are with me to look ahead to what is a huge match. Plus, Danny joins me for an in-focus chat about that night. So let's get into it. Fulham. Right, chaps. Well, let's start with the main talking point from the last week or so then. Alexander Mitrovic has had an outstanding week, scoring five goals in three games against Ireland, Belgium and Azerbaijan. His form clearly is no longer an issue. There really aren't any excuses not to start him in a team struggling for goals now, are there? It's a huge message to Scott Parker, surely, Stato. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I normally hate the international break. It's kind of an unnecessary thing. It's, you know, it's boring. No one cares about it. But I, I quite enjoyed it this time around for the main fact that you know, it kind of gave us some you know, reflect, breathing space and reflection of how the season's gone so far. This season has been a weird season where we've had lots of games crammed together in a very short space of time. And now, you know, there's eight games spread over two months and we had this little break to, just to kind of look back and what's happened so far. And one of those main things was looking at kind of how, what's happened with Mitrovic this season. And, you know, it, it has got me thinking and, you know, why haven't we played him more? He should have been played more. Um, you know, I, at the beginning he was a bit injured. Then he had that penalty miss for Serbia, which, you know, kind of rocked his confidence. And, you know, rightly so, he got dropped from the team for a bit. But it shouldn't have been for this long. And, you know, it's kind of beggars belief now that if he doesn't play him then you know Parker will have blood on his hands I think blood on his hands probably a little bit too strong but you sort of preface everything I want to say is there are and French is mentioned there are no excuses if you want to go through you know the litany of reasons if you want to say oh he's been you know he had to have because he's out of form you know with the you know with the with the Serbia penalty miss and against Sheffield United and all that and just generally not you know not scoring if you want to say he's out of form absolutely fine if you want to say it was because he's got an injury or because you know he had that covid spell around December time if you want to say oh he's not fully fit absolutely fine if those two things are true then judging by what we've seen in the past two weeks he's clearly not injured because he's playing regularly and he's clearly not out of form because he's scoring for Serbia so whatever excuses that Scott Parker may have had, if indeed they were true, have gone out the window. So there have been some rumours, again, rumours. They could be, it could be totally nonsense. They could be some level of truth. But there have been some talk. There's maybe been like a falling out between the two because of, you know, a whole number of things. Um, and the way that he's, um, he didn't play because our style of play didn't suit him, all that sort of stuff. Whatever you want to say, there are no excuses now. He has to play. There is... He's in form, he's fully fit, and given that you know the rest of our team aren't exactly scoring boatloads, you can't use the excuse of, oh, Josh Madger is firing and playing a lot better than him. So there is only one option now, and Mitrovic is it. I just don't buy that he can't play in this system. I mean, what is the point in having quick players who get in good positions only to fluff the lines every time? And it's not, you know, I can accept goalkeepers saving shots. That that happens. But the amount of chances that we've just blazed wide or blazed over from good positions. And I was just looking at the stats for the, the other players who 
who've played up front, aside from Josh Madger, who's quite new. But this season, um, Adam Ola Lutman has started 25 games and scored four goals, and he's come on a sub a couple of times. Bobby Reed has scored uh, five in 20 uh, starts with five substitute appearances, but neither of them have really played up front that much. They've kind of been playing as the the um, the kind of wingers, if you like, in in a front three or in a in a midfield five. Um, and then you've got Ivan Caballero, who has played up front quite a lot on his own. Um, three goals in um, in 21 starts and seven substitute appearances. Not good enough. Not good enough. Not a striker. Why is he anywhere near that that kind of striker role when we've got Mitrovic um, breathing down his neck? And Mitro has started uh, 10 games this season, come off the bench 13 times, and he's he's just got those two goals in that one match against Leeds. But it just it just isn't even a question anymore. We've got eight games. This team doesn't score goals. We've got a goal scorer who's proven on the bench. Get him in the team. Stop fucking about. Yeah, so this is exactly what I meant by having this kind of time to reflect. Like At the time when we were playing Cavaleo instead of him, everyone was kind of on board with it and everyone was kind of saying, yeah, that makes sense. He's not playing well. We need this kind of pacey forward. And then when Magic came in, it's like, there's this new striker. Let's play him. But, you know, now we've had this time to look back on things. It's like, well, he scored 26 goals last year for us. He scored, what, 10, 11 goals in the Premier season before. How can we just suddenly throw him away like this? And... You know, Parker gets a lot of praise this season. He's done a lot of things right. He's, he's gave us a fighting chance, but this treatment of Mitrovic, it's very questionable. And, you know, it's something you know that we might look back and, you know, regret come the end of the season. He's he's one of our best players. And it's kind of the uh, the equivalent of Anderson making a couple of mistakes and then dropping him and playing Michael Hector for the rest of the season and shipping a load of goals because of it and not changing it. You know, we're not scoring enough goals. We're creating chances. We're not scoring enough goals. So you've got to get your best player in. And that that's as, you know, that's as far as it goes. And will we be thinking this season, at the end of the season, if we get relegated, well, if we'd have played Mitrovic, then I wonder if we'd have scored a few more goals and won a few, a few more games. And maybe if we do stay up, we'll be thinking, well, we've stayed up by the skin of our teeth. It could have been more comfortable if we played our best player. Yeah, and just to touch on what you're saying about style again, we can, I could, I could sort of understand it when we were, you know, in the process of, you know, shipping goals left, right, and and we had to change to a more defensive style. And you could, again, some some people will argue that you wanted Caviar and Lukman, you wanted pace, and Mitrovic, whilst he does have some, isn't exactly known for his pace. So you wanted Lukman and Caviar and Reed and all that stuff for the counter attack to sort of sit back and then go up and drive. I could understand that. But now that we've got the defensive side of the game pretty much sorted, I mean there are still there are still some weaknesses as the Leeds game showed, but we're not shipping as many as we are or as we were against Villa and Arsenal and all that lot at the start of the season. So now that we've got that, we can afford not can afford, but we should be taking a few more risks, and that includes putting on a more attacking minded player like Mitrovic, you know, trying to be more direct and actually trying to incorporate him into the game. I just don't buy that he's not he's not quick enough to play counter-attack in football. All right, he's not as quick as Lookman and Caviero, perhaps. But look at what Lookman and Caviero ultimately do with it when they get it into a good position. There's been a couple of goals. Um, two, I, I can think of two Caviero goals. He, he scored that one against West Brom, where um, it was a header from close range from a cross. 
I can think of the close-range header against Spurs. Can't think of the other one. Has he been effective on the counter-attack, really, in, in terms of return for goals? No, he hasn't. Yeah, definitely. And the, th- the thing is, right, if we're against a big team like, you know, the Cities, the Spurs, the Chelsea's, the Arsenal's, if Mitrovic doesn't play fair enough, we want to play this defensive counter-attacking game, sure, go ahead. But look at the games we've got coming up. We've got Villa, Wolves, Burnley, Newcastle, all teams around our level that we need to be winning and need to be scoring the goals against. So it just makes sense to play him and there's no excuses now. All right, well, I think we're all in agreement. Mitrovic has got to start. We'll have a little look later on at who else should play. And if he doesn't start at the weekend and we don't score and we don't get the three points, three points that we really need, then there's going to be some big question marks. And I, like you said, Stato, Scott Park has done some great work this season, but it's now or never now. And we need goals. And that's that's the end of it. Let's look at quickly Aston Villa then. Uh, they currently sit in 10th place in the Premier League. They've got 41 points already with 10 matches left to play of their season. This season's a far cry from their last season where their 35 points kept them up at the expense of Bournemouth by a single point, a point which was earned at West Ham on the last day of the season. Baldo, how do you think Dean Smith turned it around at Villa Park in their second season back in the top flight? I think they've managed to recruit incredibly well. And it's a point that we, uh, particularly J-Mac has brought up in the in the um, chat. It's once you get that first season out of the way, and it's something you know you can apply to us. Once we, and if we get that first season out of the way and we've established ourselves, then you can go forward. And I think that's really what, what Dean Smith had done. The likes of Matty Cash, I think was a good signing. Emilio Martinez, you know, their goalkeepers, they rotated about three or four last year, but now they've got Emi Martinez from Arsenal, a brilliant signing. You know, dare I say, Ollie Watkins as well, and um, Ross Barkley. They've managed to bring in, you know, once they've got that first season out of the way of, oh, we're going to struggle a little bit, let's focus on just staying up. Now they can invest because they've got that season, they've got that, you know, season's worth of prize money. They've gone and they've done and they've re- recruited incredibly well. So that's really what we sort of need to be aiming for, not necessarily to their level, but, you know, they are what we should have been in 2018 19. Once, you know, in that season, we saw what we wanted to walk, uh, run before we could walk and try and buy all these flash players, you know, like Seri, like Angisa, and all that lot. Whereas we should have been focused on, right, let's consolidate and stay up first and then push forward. Whereas Aston Villa have done it the right way around. It's worth pointing out that um, they got recruitment dead on this time around, but last season they did kind of muck it up big time and they got quite lucky to stay up. But, you know, signings like Samata, Wesley, um, Marvelous Nakamba, like they haven't really worked out, and they kind of they, they they got lucky to stay up, but they also had a, a solid core of players at the same time. So they had Grealish, they had McGinn, they had Mings and Konza, and they they had that those that core set of players, and they managed to kind of build upon that and you know create this quite good Premier League team. And if we were looking to do the same thing, you know, for us that that core is there: the Anderson, Tosin, Harrison, Reed. Lamina, you know, it's all there. Obviously, a lot of them alone, so we'd have to turn them into permanents first. But, you know, they're a good blueprint to follow. And if we stay up, you know, we'd want to do something similar and just kind of add that bit of quality to our team if it happens for us. Well, you mentioned Jack Grealish there, and he hasn't played since the 0-0 draw at Brighton on the 13th of February. And in that time, they've won just once in six games, a victory that came on the 27th of February away at Leeds United. This, of course, means that they're without a win in four matches going into the game with us. Grealish really is integral to Aston Villa. 
are you surprised at how well he's done this season? And secondly, that he's still playing for Aston Villa? Um, no, I'm not surprised at how well he's done because he's a very good footballer. Um, you know, we, we we hated him at Wembley and he was, a, he was a bit of a dicker at Wembley and he was a bit of a dick at that championship season. But let's be honest, he's doing really well in the Premier League and he's one of the best players in the Premier at the moment. And, you know, like I said, they had that core set of Villa players and they've added that quality. And, you know, if he's in a, if he's in a set of, if he's with a set of players who are, you know, as good as him or nearly as good as him, he's, of course, he's going to flourish. You know, he's got 10 goals, uh, six goals, sorry, and 10 assists this season. Um, and, you know, no player in the Premier League creates more key passes than him per game um, with 3.4. That's, that's even more than Kevin De Bruyne. So, you know, he's very good. And it's kind of a bit annoying. He's going to be back in time to play us, to be honest. Yeah, just on the, um, you touched on really the first point, I'll touch on the second point. Am I surprised to still see him at Villa? In all honesty, no, because, and this goes back to what I was saying about progress. You know, if you go from, you know, in the playoff final, you know, obviously a decent player he was, there was enough there to say, all right, we can go again next year. So, I mean, they, so they kept him and they went up next year. Then, then, they get, then they get promoted, stay up again by the skin of their teeth. But again, it's literal progress going forward. You know, if Aston Villa had gone down last year, then... You know, Jack Grealish, who was again brilliant for them last year, then you could have understood, right? Yeah, it's time. It's time for me to go. But the fact that they are making that progress, and also he is an Aston Villa fan, he's you know come through the club. That that one of our own element will always sort of be with him, and will always. I don't want to say hold him back, but will play a part in negotiation. It's the same thing with Harry Kane. It's the one thing that's sort of holding people back in this negotiation is the fact that he's a fan. There's an extra, you know. If Harry Kane wasn't a Tottenham fan, he probably would have gone. He's not. Two or three uh, Harry, Harry Kane's an Arsenal fan. No, he just came through the academy. He, he is he? a Tottenham fan. Yeah, I've seen I've seen pictures of him as a youngster in an Arsenal shirt. I think that was when he was in the Arsenal academy. I think right. that's, a, but he is a Tottenham fan. He has sort of said it because he went he to would, the championship. Whatever. He would say He would say that. Yeah, he probably <laughs> would. But we're getting, but we're getting off point. But yeah. yeah, that sort of element has held him back. So. If they were, you know, struggling this season, you know, basically a repeat of where they were last year, then I reckon this would be the summer for them to leave, for him to leave rather. But again, using the progress now that they're comfortably mid-table, I think, you know, 10th or 11th around that mark, they could say, right, another year of progression. Next year, we're going to go for the Europa League. Do you want to be with us? And he'll probably say, yeah. I think it's it's obviously a rare thing in this day and age that a player stays with one club for their whole career. And I just think Jack Grealish, as much as I... Don't like him very much. He's the sort of player that could go to a bigger club and win trophies. Or he could just stick around at Aston Villa and just be a one-club man who didn't ever really win anything. Because I don't necessarily see Villa winning any, you know, maybe a League Cup. But I don't really see them winning much more than that, you know, before he's at the age where he would retire. So I'm, I'm, that's why I asked that question, because I, I think it's quite admirable that he stayed um, with his hometown club, the club who he's always supported. Um, when there's been options of, of going elsewhere, you know, to play probably a Champions League level at least. Now he's broken into the England team. I think he's definitely worthy of a, a Champions League place somewhere. But not, not that I particularly care, but it's just, you know, it's just something that is is a, an interesting point considering that it's likely he's going to be available for selection against us at the weekend. And he always seems to do quite well against us as well. All right, well, let's move on. Let's go to the chat I had recently with Danny about ex-Aston Villa and Fulham centre-half, Zat Knight. Fulham. 
Yep, Dally joins me once again for the next in our series of player in focus chats. Today it's former Fulham and Aston Villa defender Zach Knight. You all right, Danny? Hello, mate. Yeah, looking forward to this one. I think um, most of the focus chats we've done since we started this have, have been club legends or players that have played in iconic teams. And we decided to go with someone like Zach Knight who maybe a bit more controversial, sort of divides opinions. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it's, it's going to be a different kind of focus chat today. Well, Zach Knight was signed for Fulham at the age of 18 by Kevin Keegan in 1999 from the mighty Russell Olympic. And as per usual, Keegan's dealings in the transfer market attracted plenty of press coverage. But this one was for a slightly different reason, as it wasn't a monumental transfer fee this time. But as the six foot six inch centre half wasn't professionally contracted to Russell, we sent them a box of tracksuits as a gesture of goodwill. It was one of the more bizarre bits of business we've done over the years, really, wasn't it? Yeah, and over the years, I think it's it's uh, allowed fans that that weren't keen on Zat to come up with the excuse that what a waste of tracksuits. Um, but it was the perfect time for for a young man like Zat to come to a club like Fulham with all those high profile players around him that he could learn off of, the likes of Chris Coleman, Simon Morgan, Kit Simons, and and even Kevin Keegan as as manager. There was a lot of top professionals, seasoned pros that he could only benefit from learning from. Uh, and overall, when you think of what we got out of that night, <laughs> considering we, we didn't pay anything for him, it was a good signing. Well, you mentioned Chris Coleman and Kit Simons there, and they were our central defensive partnership at the time. And there was never going to be much danger of that night getting into the first team straight away, particularly with those two in the team ahead of him. Um, and we were absolutely flying at the top of Division 2 under Kevin Keegan at the time. But he was brought in as one for the future in much the same way that the likes of Kevin Betsy was, for example. And Betsy made the first team quicker than Zach Knight. And in all fairness, he was a couple of years older. But Knight took a little bit more time, but eventually went on to establish himself in the team for a few years. And I make that comparison between that night and Kevin Betsy because both came from non-league at a time when we were signing whoever the hell we liked for big money at that level. I think it's a very good comparison to make, actually. I think with um, Zat, like you said, there was a lot of centre-backs in front of him in the pecking order. So I think maybe less potential was put on his shoulders than there was on Kevin Betsy. And, and he wasn't thrown into the deep end in the way that Kevin was. And he was able to bide his time and slowly be nurtured into a Premier League footballer. Because it wasn't, we're talking about him signing in, what, 1999? He probably didn't make his, he established himself in the Fulham team until about 2003. So it was a, a slow process with that. And given the player he was, I think that was probably the, the right way to go about it with him. I think if we had thrown him into the deep end, I think he would have quite easily been found out and, and maybe written off, uh, which would have been unfortunate. So I think the way Keegan, Bracewell, Tigana went about it uh, as as between the three of them, I think was the, the right way. I think it was, yeah, you're right. It was the right way, but it was kind of indicative of, of how we were doing our transfer business at the time in much the same way that teams that spend a lot of money on new players do it now in that you sign players that are ready-made and occasionally 
um, a superstar from the youth team uh, will will rear their head and eventually make the youth team, you know, sorry, the full team, like at Man City, for example. You know, they, they can sign who the hell they like because they've got all the money in the world to do it with. But Phil Foden is one of the stars of their team and he's come up from, from the youth team. And we we kind of did that with, with Zach Knight, I suppose, even though, you know, we did bring him in and we he didn't come right from the depths of our youth team. We signed him when he was 18 or 19 years old. But, you know, it, it kind of, it does remind me of that time. And not many teams were doing what we were doing at that time, were they? Just, you know, spending big money, building a new team and just ripping through the leagues. Yeah, exactly. And to Zach's credit, apart from Sean Davis, I don't recall many players from that era breaking through as youngsters uh, in, in the Fulham side, especially when we got to the Premier League. A, a few dipped in and out and, and had a chance, but you, you'd find it hard to find someone that went on to make as many Premier League appearances as that did from the academy of his era. So, I mean, I'd, I reckon Zach probably made more uh, Premier League appearances in, in his career than Sean Davis did. So, I think we're we're quite quick to to write off Zat. What a lot of fans are, uh, and I think there's a lot of people that will tell you that he wasn't very good. Which is, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. That's fine. But what I admire about Zat Knight is that I think we see a lot of players that have he's got potential. He's got, he's got all the talent in the world, and they just don't make the most of what they have. You know, they've got everything at their feet, and they end up with nothing. Uh, and then you look at someone like Zach Knight, who was probably limited in his ability. But when you think of what he achieved playing for England, uh, he played nearly 300 Premier League appearances in his career, I think, like 11 seasons in a row for us, Villa and Bolton. And whether you think he deserved to go on to do that or not is irrelevant. The fact that he did and maximised the talent he had, I think is is something we should admire about him. And he's the butt of a lot of jokes, and I think unfairly, because you know he will be the first to admit he wasn't the greatest footballer in the world, but he still went on to make a lot more Premier League appearances than most. And I, have, I think that's you know good on him. Well, he made his top flight debut in the Premiership in the nil-nil draw away at Leicester in September 2001 alongside Andy Melville and was eventually replaced by Kit Simons with 25 minutes of that game to go. But it was under Chris Coleman's reign as manager that Zat really began to establish himself as a regular in the first team. Um, and that seems quite fitting, seeing as Chris Coleman was club captain when Zat signed. But you're right about the kind of perception that people had of Zat Knight. Um, and he even acquired the nickname Nightmare quite quickly, didn't he? Which, you know, perhaps was a little bit unfair. My understanding of, of someone that's as tall as that Knight is uh, would be that it must be quite difficult to have a low centre of gravity and it must be harder to have, um, you know, as good close control of the ball and, and, and things like that, the technical side of it. That's why I always thought Peter Crouch was a better player than people gave him credit for because his footwork was amazing. But that's... Yeah, he tended to do these long, diagonal, aimless balls that would go out for throw-ins, or he'd be on the halfway line looking for a pass, and he'd quite happily go all the way back to the keeper, and then the crowd would groan and think, oh, for God's sake, you know, why are you doing that? But 
when he didn't choose to do the easy option and keep it simple, and he, and he tried to do something a bit more audacious or or try and do a ball like Anderson or Tossin do now, more often than not, he would make a mistake because uh, that's just that was just a part of his game that he wasn't very good at. Um, and you know, unfortunate for him, most mistakes he made would lead to you know a, a bad impact for the team, cost us a goal or a penalty or something or whatever. So. He probably created the perception of himself through the way he chose to play. But like I said, I think he made the most of what he had. And in fairness to him, there was a lot of games where he would play well for 90 minutes and then, you know, in the 91st minute, make a, a terrible mistake. It, it wasn't like he was dreadful throughout. You know, he's just he was just prone to poor decision-making, I think. In that season when he did establish himself, the 2003-2004 season, he played 31 of the 38 games, forming a decent defensive partnership with Alain Goma as Fulham went on to finish ninth, which was our highest league finish ever at the time. I think Alan Goma was the perfect player for him to play alongside. He was the sort of player who would bring the best out of his defensive partner in much the same way that Hanglin did with Hughes. Oh, well, this is what I mean about Zach Knight having the best education and, and root into the Premier League as a youngster. I mean, like we said earlier about the experienced centre-backs that were in front of him, uh, you know, Simon Morgan. What, what a great role model to learn from. Kit Simons, Andy Melville, and then, like we said, Chris Coleman is now his manager, which is just perfect timing. And then as you come into the first team to effectively replace Andy Melville, he's got Alan Gomer alongside him, who's, I think most fans would agree, one of the best centre-backs we've ever had, especially in the Premier League era. And not only that, he had Vardasar behind him. You know, Vardasar in your ear, leading you through the games, you know. And it's not long after that he got that England call-up. And to be fair to that, he played 31 games in that season, like you just said. And that was the season when we had our highest league finish. And Sahar was on fire and we finished ninth eventually, but we were still knocking on the door of Champions League football going into the new year. And Zat was very much a part of that team. And I think Zat was the kind of centre-back that if he was led through the game and he was guided through by better players, then I think he was OK. It was the gradual decline after that where Van der Sar would go and we'd downgrade and then Goma would go and we'd downgrade. And then all of a sudden, Zat Knight found himself as the established player in that back five and that's when I think he wasn't able to do everybody else's jobs for them he needed to be led through the game rather than lead cool it just takes me back to when it was Zach Knight and Zesh Raymond in central defense that does send a shiver down the spine doesn't it that's the kind of example I was thinking of as well Uh, nothing against Zesh but he was another young man that was coming through the academy and Zach had only really established himself in the in the team a couple of years earlier. I, I kind of feel like Zach was thrown into the deep end, having to mentor this new young guy alongside him, who probably wasn't Premier League quality, if we're honest. And um, Zach went from having the perfect regime around him to uh, a bit of a nightmare, you know, excuse the pun. He wasn't capable of holding that group together on his own. Do you remember when Zat hit the bar uh, with a volley from around 40 yards out when we played Manchester United in the FA Cup that season? 
It was a few months after that 3-1 league victory that we had at Old Trafford and we lost the game 2-1 in the end and United eventually went on to win the FA Cup that season. But if Zach's effort had been a couple of inches lower, we could have been talking about one of the best goals the FA Cup had ever seen. And who knows what have, you know what would have gone on to happen in the FA Cup this season had it gone in. Yeah, I, I do remember it, yeah. How could you not remember it if you saw it live? The only reason I remember it so well is because I was at the 3-1 win earlier in the season. And to see us win at Old Trafford was surreal. So then when we drew him in the FA Cup and I thought, and we went 1-0 up, I think his Steed scored a penalty. And I thought, here we go again. So that's probably the only reason uh, that shot sticks in my mind because I, I remember that game really well. But yeah, if it had gone in, it would have been some goal. Uh, I'm not sure if it was meant to be a pass, actually. <laughs> it was a typical Saturday night punt, wasn't it, forward. But it's a shame. It's one of them, what could have been, I think. It, it, would it have rivaled Kasami, do you reckon, if it had gone in? Uh, if we'd have gone on to win the FA Cup this season off the back of it, undoubtedly that would be one of the greatest goals we, we had ever seen. Just for, for the stage that it was on, for the distance, the just audacity of the attempt. It was a hell of an effort. Um. In May 2005, he was called up to play for England off the back of his performances for Fulham. He went on to earn two caps, firstly against the USA when he came off the bench, and then he started against Colombia four days later. It was a proud moment for me and for all Fulham fans, I suppose, despite the matches only being friendly matches. Do you have any memories of those games? Obviously, being a Fulham fan, it doesn't happen very often. I mean, if you are a Fulham fan that was born between the 22nd of November 1967 and the 28th of May 2005, which I think is a lot of us, that night was the first Fulham player you saw play for England because 1967 was when George Cohen made his last appearance and we didn't have anyone in between. So regardless of whether you think it was a, a deserved call-up or, or what you think of that night, I think it's something we should be proud of. I, I quite happily watched both games, even though they were friendlies. Uh, and he did all right. I mean, uh, he looked a bit out of place and, and I don't think any of us expected it to progress further than that one call up. I think we had a lot of injuries and it was just one of those. Um, and he was in the form of his life, I would say, because that was when he was alongside Goma and he was doing really well. So the two caps themselves came against America and Colombia. Uh, the first one was second half substitute. He started the, the Columbia game and played the whole 90 minutes. Obviously, I don't remember this offhand. I had to look this up. But in his debut against America, there was a lot of Fulham connections on show. We had Kieran Richardson score both goals and Andy Johnson started up front. And obviously, they both went on to play for us. Uh, Dempsey scored the goal for America. And they also had Keller and McBride in the starting 11. Bocanegra came on. And Marcus Hanneman was on the bench. And then against Colombia, when he started, I thought this was a bit weird. He, he was the only recognised centre-back in the England team. The back four was Ashley Cole, Knight, Glenn Johnson and Phil Neville. Work that one out, if you want. Uh, I don't know what, what was going on there, but I suppose a few uh, pointless facts here. No one really probably cares, but I just thought it was interesting to, to look back in, on his caps when we was doing this, because he was... Like I said, the first Fulham player to play for England in my lifetime. It was a bit different to when Zamora got called up because I think Zamora was undoubtedly good enough to play for England and I think would have gone to the World Cup. We were talking about someone that was a serious contender for the England squad. 
Whereas with that, it seemed a bit of a, a one-off. But nevertheless, I was still really excited to see a Fulham player play for England. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget it. I'm very proud of that. Well, despite his size, he didn't get that many goals for Fulham. Just the four in total during his eight-year stay at the club. Are there any in particular that stand out as being your favourite? I did my research and I discovered the four goals were away to Watford in the FA Cup, away to Portsmouth in a one-all draw in the Premier League and away to Bolton in a 2-1 defeat in the Premier League. I can't remember any of them goals, if I'm being honest. So the standout one for me is the Norwich one. I think it's the the one most Fulham fans would pick, I'd imagine. Uh, It was quite a good goal. He sliced at it, didn't he? Sliced on the half volley and a bit of backspin into the bottom corner. It was a good goal. And it was the the most memorable because it was such an iconic match, I suppose. You know, it's still to this day our joint highest Premier League win, the 6-0. And, of course, we relegated Norwich on the day, so... There's a lot about that game to be uh, remembered and I'm not sure there is about the other three. Yeah, it's that survival Sunday, wasn't it, um, against Norwich and took them to pieces, really. And you know it's not your day if that night's scoring against you in, in the game when you need to stay up. And uh, Yeah, that, that was really unfortunate for Norwich, but it's a big day for us and a big day for Zat as well. And it, it was a decent finish um, in, the, in front of the Hammersmith end as well and he looked delighted when he scored it. So, yeah, good for him. Speaking of goals, in his last game for Fulham in August 2007, he scored an own goal in a 2-1 defeat to Aston Villa at Villa Park. He then signed for Aston Villa a few days later and scored on his debut in the 2-0 win against Chelsea. Quite the week for him, given that he's a Villa fan too. I don't think Zach Knight would have known that he was going to Villa when he scored that own goal. Uh, But he must be the only player, surely, to score in consecutive games for the same club but be contracted to two different teams. I suppose it weren't like when Barmorte or Steed went. I think I don't think people were particularly fussed that Zat had gone. It was his hometown club. Good luck to him. But the fact that he scored on his debut, all right, good, it was against Chelsea, but I couldn't believe it. I was like, this guy has come up and scored from a corner. I don't remember him ever doing that for Fulham. And that was probably my one pet hate about him was how poor he was at heading the ball and being a threat from set pieces. Considering how tall he was, I don't think there was much advantage to his height in either box. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it's frustrating as well, wasn't it? That we've had had such a poor record against Chelsea over the years, just getting that one win. And on his debut for Aston Villa, he goes and scores what, you know, a a goal and and beats beats him 2-0. It's just... You couldn't make it up, could you? You couldn't write it. Anyway, you said that he divided opinion amongst Fulham fans and that people probably weren't that fussed when he left, but look back at it now and we've we've got to rate his Fulham career out of 10. So what are you going to give him? Well, I've tried to defend him where possible because I think he is a bit unfairly written off as a nightmare. And I've heard people in the past say that he's the worst defender they've ever seen, which... Uh, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but you know I, I just can't believe that. You don't play 11 seasons in a row of your career in the Premier League and get called up for England if you are the worst. It's just not true, is it? But like I said, everyone's entitled to their opinion. I just don't agree with that. Having said that, he wasn't the best, was he? Uh, and I think he couldn't have done any better than he did. 
I said it earlier, I think he maximised his ability. And I'm going to give him a decent score for that because I think there's so many players in the past that have come up short when they had all the talent in the world. So I think 6 out of 10 is probably fair. It's about average. It's not uh, mugging him off and it's not making him out to be something he wasn't. He was an average player uh, and I think his Fulham career was an average one with longevity because he managed to stay in the team for a lot longer than most other players. I mean, only seven players have played more Premier League appearances for Fulham. Only seven players have won more games in the Premier League for Fulham. And and only Hanglin and Hughes are the only centre-backs to play more Premier League games for Fulham. If you include the top flight for our, our whole history, going back to the days of Johnny Haynes and George Cohen, he's still in the top 20 for top flight appearances. He then only comes down to fourth for centre-backs behind... Again, you know, Hangler and Hughes' partnership and Eddie Lowe. And Eddie Lowe is second on the all-time list behind Johnny Haynes. So when you put it all into perspective, he achieved a lot more than I think people probably give him credit for. And I think six out of ten is fair. I think for me, looking back, I, I can't change how I felt at the time. And I didn't really rate him that highly at the time. I, I didn't think that he inspired much confidence uh, as a centre-half, and I used to get nervous when the ball used to go near him. Notwithstanding, looking at the stats that you've just read out and looking at that season where he played all those games, you know, and we went on to finish ninth, I think that was probably a little bit unfair to feel that way. But I don't know what it was that made me feel that way because he obviously wasn't crap. And you look at our defensive record in the Premier League more recently, OK, this season we're we're doing very well, but... The last time round, for example, our defensive record was was appalling. And we never had a record like that when he was in the side. And you look at people that were part of that defence last time around as well. You know, Tim Ream, Dennis Adoy, Callum Chambers for for a part of it. People that are probably perceived as being more popular um, with the fans than Zach Knight was. So maybe it is unfair and his, his record that is what we have to judge him by now as well, it kind of speaks for itself. So I, I think six out of ten is is fair. I can understand why fans felt nervous when he was on the ball. I did as well. And I think he created that persona about him because of his style of play, because he was prone to mistakes and he, he was a little bit clumsy. I mean, I look at the way um, Anthony Robinson controls the ball now and he always looks like he's going to fall over it. And and Zach was a little bit like that. And, and he had to keep his game simple, otherwise it was just going to implode. A little bit like Philip Senderos, I think he made himself an easy target because he was prone to that one mistake that was going to cost the team. It, you know, other players seem to make six or seven mistakes in a game and it goes unnoticed. Whereas Zach was the type of player that would make that one mistake. And regardless of how well he'd played, that's what people would remember him for. And I think some players develop that kind of reputation over a period of time. So I understand why fans feel that way. But when you look at the stats and and people for the last few years have, have gone on about how badly we've needed to invest in defenders and, and this is why we always leak goals because we haven't got good enough defenders. Now all of a sudden we have got good defenders and the defence has sorted itself out. Well, you can't have it both ways. You know, that was part of teams that never got relegated and very rarely looked troubled into being relegated until just before Laurie Sanchez took over. 
of all the players you could brand as a scapegoat, I think he is probably the biggest one. Um, and some of it was justified, but given how many crap players we have had since, I think it puts into perspective where Zach Knight should be held, and that's just an average player. Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair, mate. I think we probably just about covered it all, to be honest, for this one. So thanks for that, mate. And let's pass it back to the main show. Fulham. All right. So, Stato, you've got the stats for us. Do you want to run us through them? Yeah, sure. So a lot of this we've kind of alluded to already on the pod, but, you know, it's kind of worth highlighting and looking over it again. So obviously last year... They stayed up by the skin of their team from 35 points, only getting nine wins all season. Um, this season, like you said, they're much improved. They've had 12 wins, five draws, and only 11 losses so far. Um, five of those wins have come at Villa Park. And in fact, their away form is a lot, lot better. Well, not a lot, lot better. Quite, quite, better, quite a bit better than their home form. They've only got 17 points at home compared to 24 away. So, you know, playing them at Villa Park, we're playing them at quite a good time without fans and whatnot. Um, this is currently their best season in the last 10 years in the Prem. Obviously, they've been out of the Prem for, what, three of those 10 years? Two or three of those years. Um, but even then, you know, that this is their best season in some time, probably since um, when they were challenging for the top four under Martin O'Neill with John Carew, Ron Lahore, Ashley Young, James Milner, that golden era for them. So, you know, they're, they're currently on, this is currently their best season in some time now. However, as you mentioned, without Grealish, they don't seem to you know, play as well. And they haven't won in four games now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a bit of a shame he's coming back. But, you know, not just... It's, we can't just say Grealish makes the team tick because they've actually only won two games um, at Villa Park since the beginning of January. So, you know, they got off to a fantastic start at the beginning of the year. There was that 7-2 win against Liverpool... Obviously, they you know, dicked us 3-0, which was you know, when we were awful and had an awful defence. Our defence that day, by the way, if, if anyone remembers, it was Tete, Odoi, Hector, Reem and Brian. My word, that was, that, it's just awful. Um, but, you know, the second half of the season, they look to kind of be, not decline, but they're not as, uh, as hot as they were in the first half. So, again, we're playing them at quite a good time. Um, one of their big improvements, of course, is the fact that they're conceding a lot a fewer goals than what they were last season. And, you know, it's a combination of new signings like Matty Cash and Emmy Martinez, um, a sort of defensive partnership at the back with Concert and Mings. Um, but overall, it's resulting in conceding fewer goals. Um, they actually conceded 1.07 goals per game. Only Man City, Chelsea and Spurs are conceding fewer goals than them so far this season. Um and, you know, you can see this improved defensive record because they're actually ranked second in terms of aerial duels that they win per game. Um, only Burnley, surprise, surprise, um, beat them in that regard. So, you know, they they win their battles both attacking and defensive. And, you know, they don't let, they don't let much pass them. Um, interestingly, they're also the most fouled team in the league, um, which coincides with Jack Grish being the most fouled player in the league. He's been fouled 100 times so far this season. Um, for context, second place is Sadio Mane, who's been fouled 64 times. So it just goes to show how much he gets fouled or how much he dives or how much he buys fouls, whatever your view on it is. Um, 
Going over to the type of goals they've scored, so 36% of the goals that they've scored this season have come from set pieces, 8% of those being penalties. On the flip side, for goals that they've conceded, only 27% have come from set pieces. Again, that aligns with them winning all their aerial battles. Um, and another interesting stat is that 22% of their shots um, are taken from the left-hand side, which is the joint highest in the league, along with us. Um, which probably makes sense, seeing as Lookman's our most creative player and you know, most of our shots probably come from him cutting in, taking shots. Um, I would imagine the same applies for Villa. I think Grealish likes to play out on the left, so he probably likes cutting in as well and taking those. Or Watkins actually plays out on the left. Um, so, yeah, there's some good stats there. Plenty to digest. Thanks, mate. All right, well, Baldo, how, how do you see us lining up for this one then? Yeah, I think it's... The 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 main question is going to come is going to come around Alexander Mitrovic and as much as we like to say oh he's got to play there's no excuse and everything we know that Scott Parker is pretty stubborn when it comes to his thing he's not exactly open to change he's got his he's got his philosophy he's going to stick with it but I do at the same time think yeah this is this has got to be the time so Mitrovic probably will come in I think that probably will be the only change because even against Leeds you know as much as we can see we didn't look too bad you know even like. It was switching off defensively, two mistakes. It wasn't exactly a disaster. They didn't overpower us, as it were. So I'd probably say Mitrovic comes in probably for, let's go for Caviero, I'd say, because we've we've had our problems with Caviero. Mitrovic will probably come in and solve them. How about for you, Stato? Any, any changes that you've made to that? So there's kind of two... There's two... There's two outcomes here. There's, there's what I want to line up and what I think Parker will line up as. So what I want, and I think it's Danny. Danny put this line up in the, in the chat, in the in the focus chat, and it kind of, for me, it makes sense. It's our best lineup, and there's kind of, there's kind of no questions around it. And you know, it's obviously every other and go. Our back four, our best back four is Tete, Anderson, Tosin, and Ina. You know, I think the Everton game and the recent games that shows that's probably our most effective back four midfield you want you want Reed and Lamina they both work hard they both do a job and Gisa, I like him he's been really good but in recent games he's been a bit sloppy and he's been a bit too casual um, on the wings you want Lookman and we'll come back to White Mid in a minute in the 10 or the attacking mid row I think that needs to go to Bobby Reed. I think he's our most creative player I think he's he's probably been one of our most consistent performers and he's been our, probably our best player so far this year and his most effective position has got to be in that attacking midfield role and obviously up top you want Mitrovic so that does leave right mid and you look at the options so the options are either Loftus-Cheek or Cavalero both have their strengths and weaknesses Loftus-Cheek is not really a right mid he's kind of putting a square peg in a round hole Cavalero he kind of blows hot and cold but he is better on the wing I would go for Loftus-Cheek because Again, as Danny pointed out, and it makes sense, the games that we win, he tends to play and he's, he tends to be quite effective. And at the same time, um, Cav, the games that he does actually play well, he's looked quite bright, is when he comes off the bench. I think he's quite a good impact sub. So, you know, under that rationale, you'd play Loftus Cheek, you'd start Loftus Cheek on the right and look to bring Cav on. That's what I'd want. What I think will happen. Um, because this is Parker, I think we'll I think we'll continue to see Robinson play at left back. He likes him. He's quick. He's pacey. Does have his flaws, but you know Parker tends to like playing him. And I, th- uh, you know, I really want to say that he'll start Mitrovic, but I just don't think he will. And I think he's just going to piss off a lot of people. And you know, I think we'll start Maggio in front of him. 
which you know isn't ideal, but I think that's what happened. If you start to calve, then we riot. If you start to calve <laughs> up top, that is, we riot. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. All right. Well, let's have a look at the other games that are happening this weekend. Um, on Saturday, uh, West Brom travel to Chelsea, twelve thirty kickoff. Baldo, home win for for you in that one. Yeah, comfortable home win. And in all honesty, I know I know I know what we're trying to do in terms of you know all the teams around us. I think we can realistically write West Brom off at this point. I don't think they're really any part of it. So I think I think this you know a Chelsea win, which we expect, probably would totally kill them off. But yeah, I think they're probably gone already. Same for you, Stato. So, you know, they lost to Palace before the international break, and I think that kind of dead and buried them. Um, I looked it up, and I think they have to win, like, five out of their nine games, which just isn't going to happen for them. That's borderline Champions League form, so hmm. it's not going to happen. So, yeah, I think Chelsea will win comfortably. OK, then on to Sunday, we've got Southampton versus Burnley at lunchtime on Sunday. Um, Baldo, do you see Burnley getting any anything from that? I, I genuinely can. I, I Burnley again. They will. They will pick up the odd freak result in Southampton. With them, you just you just never know. And I think Southampton are in a bit of a free fall, not in a good place at the moment. Um, despite their despite their FA Cup win, because they're now but that was against Bournemouth, so they're into the semi final. I reckon there will be some element of looking towards that as well. So yeah, I'd say I'd say Burnley. I reckon could pick something up. Yeah, and Stato, do you think Burnley are out of it, out of the equation for the, for the opposite reason to West Brom now as well in terms of our season? Yeah, so both both Southampton and Burnley both on thirty three points. I think there's they're the outside chance of them kind of being dragged into this. I think both of them will just about get over the finish line. Um, I can see this just being like a you know a scruffy one all draw or something. Yeah, I'd I'd be amazed because all the talk about us and Newcastle and all that stuff is like who's going to get to like 35 points or whatever. You know, and that's really list, realistically looking on the last day of the season. I think if Southampton or Burnley are involved in the relegation battle on the last day of the season, I would be shocked. I reckon they'll get out of it eventually. Well, the game before ours on Sunday is Newcastle versus Spurs. And I've got a sneaky suspicion that Newcastle might get a draw out of that. What do you reckon, Baldo? No, honestly, I don't see it. I just think Newcastle are too far gone are too far gone at this point in regards to you know, their form. I think morale as well. There's been some stories coming out about the atmosphere in the dressing room after their defeat to Brighton. It's shocking. I just can't see it, the toxicity around the club. And Spurs have been sort of given a little bit of a lifeline. There we are still realistically in with a chance of making the top four, which is now the only way of making the Champions League. So Jose Mourinho haven't properly motivated. So I can't. I honestly can't see anything but a Spurs win. You say realistically, they're only three points away from Chelsea in fourth. They're, they're, it's a very realistic chance. Um, and yeah, like you, said, like you said, it's kind of their one chance of having a semi-successful season by getting top four. They've got a League Cup final to look forward to, of course. But, you know, I think focus is just on the league now and to try and get that top four. And yeah, hopefully Jose will know how to do the business against a struggling Newcastle team. Well, we'll come on to our game in just a moment. The other game... That's happening on Sunday night at half past seven is Brighton travel to Manchester United, Baldo. Yeah, similar similar sort of thing. I just, I can't see anything but a home win. I think Man United will. They're in. I know they have also blown hot and cold at various points of the season, but I think 
they they want to finish the season as strong as, as strong as possible, get some momentum. Now they've got it with their Europa League, build towards their Europa League. They'll want to get as many wins under their belt. So yeah, I can see a home win. Yeah, I think so. I don't think Brighton will be in any trouble come near the end. Um, obviously, they've been close to us at times. We've been very close to them. But they, yeah, everyone says that they play too good football to go down. And as annoying as that is, that's probably right. And I think, yeah, they're on 32 already. Like Borda said earlier, if we're aiming for this 35 mark, they just need like one win and probably a draw to see themselves to safety, which they probably should get before the end of the season. All right, let's come on to our game then. Aston Villa versus Fulham. Um, I, I can't see us winning. I'll be honest with you. I don't see three points coming in this game. I can see a point and I think that'll be okay. Um, we're on 26 at the moment. We're aiming for 35 potentially. So that's nine points. So chalk one off um, at Aston Villa, who have had a very good season so far. Um, and then look at um, look at the, the home games that we've got coming up, which are the next one of which is Wolves on next Friday night. So I'm saying I'm saying one all at Aston Villa. How about you, Baldo? I think I think one all is probably a reason a reasonable shout. I'm like you. I just think Aston Villa are far too, you know, not far too. They're not like Man City or anything, but I just do do you think they have that little bit more quality than us? So I think a draw. I reckon we can probably just squeak that out if the defence is on top. Then whether or not that's a good result will probably be defined by the fact that Newcastle will have played before us. So I think that also just gives us a little bit of motivation. Say Newcastle go on and win, then I think Scott Parker will, you know, that's the message on the thing. Right, lads, it really gets serious now because that would put their gap to five points, I think it was. And that's when it really does kick into must-win mode. But hopefully if Newcastle draw or lose, then we've got a little bit of wiggle room because, again, building towards that last day of the season, so long as we just keep within touching distance. I reckon so long as it works out that way, a draw could be good enough. I think a draw is is good regardless. Um, you know, obviously we don't want Newcastle to get away with us, but we're at the point now where as weird as it sounds, we just need to ignore what Newcastle do. We just need to focus on the eight games we get and we just need to get as many points as we can in that time. And if that results in us overtaking Newcastle at the end, then happy days. And then if it doesn't, then we'll have we there are, there are other results we'll look back on that where we look at and we thought we think we should have got more points in. And I don't think getting a draw at Villa Park will be one of them. I think it, it's a good result a draw. I think that's what will happen. Um, and yeah, there's there's bigger games coming up. All right. Well, we will be back early next week with all of the fallout from the game. Have a safe Easter break. If you meet some of your friends in your gardens, make sure you tell them all about the Fulham Focus podcast. We appreciate your support and you listening to us ramble on as always. Baldo and Stato, thanks chaps. Speak to you soon. Cheers.